Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you to the team. And what a wonderful time it is to enjoy and experience baptisms together. We continue this evening with our series on the Sermon on the Mount called A New Way to Live. And we're going to speak this evening about living truthfully. It's the next section in our series. It's what Jesus deals with next. And um, I want to start by asking you this question. Has anyone ever avoided the truth to, to get out of going to something you didn't kind of entirely want to go to? Anyone know what that's like? Right? What about, um, what about when you didn't really say what you believe because you didn't want to hurt someone's feelings? Anyone ever done that? How about this one? This one's, this one's a little bit more awkward. Have you ever said something about someone else that you knew wasn't really entirely true? Maybe you started a rumor back in high school when that was the thing that you did passive-aggressively. Uh, hopefully not. We've all done many unfortunate things. Have you, ever, have you ever failed to do something that you promised to do, like clean your room? That's a very, very short example. Many other bigger examples. Right? Have you ever did something that you know that you shouldn't have done, uh, and you didn't tell anyone about the fact that you did it, or then someone tried to ask you about it, and you did your very best to kind of cover it up? Um, and, and try and avoid the fact that they'd ask you that question. I don't know if anyone's ever been in that situation. Right. Just a couple of, couple of thoughts to get our, our, our minds into the space tonight. I want to open with a short clip from The Big Bang Theory. Please excuse my voice. It's like it's dying. It's running out. It's been a very loud weekend for me. All right, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some pubescent squeaks every now and again. My apologies. All right, but uh, we're going to start with a clip from The Big Bang Theory. It's a popular sitcom, and um, I'm not necessarily endorsing the fact that we should watch The Big Bang Theory, but it is somewhat amusing sometimes. And this clip is quite helpful in just illustrating some of the ways in which we can skirt the truth as people. So, um, Jeff, if you could play that for us and uh, dim the lights, and perhaps the ladies will be ready to come back out and join us after that. All right. You'll never guess what just happened. Or I give up. <laughs> I don't guess. As a scientist, I reach conclusions based on observation and experimentation. Although as I'm saying this, it occurs to me you may have been employing a rhetorical device, rendering my response moot. What was that? Believe it or not, personal growth. What happened? All right, remember when I auditioned for that workshop production of Rent, but I didn't get it and I couldn't figure out why? I have a conclusion based on an observation. No, you don't. No, he doesn't. <laughs> Well, the girl they picked to play Mimi, she dropped out, and they asked me to replace her. Oh, congratulations. What a lucky break. It's not a big deal. Just a one-night showcase, but they invite a lot of casting people and agents, so you never know. I think I know. No, you don't. <laughs> he doesn't. It's this Friday at 8. You guys want to come? No. <laughs> because... Uh, Friday, we are attending a symposium on molecular positronium. I think that's a week from Tuesday at 6. No, it's this Friday. At eight. Oh, too bad. Well, I gotta get to rehearsal. See you guys. See ya. Let's. Penny. 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 Good morning. Do you have any idea what time it is? Of course I do. My watch is linked to the atomic clock in Boulder, Colorado. It's accurate to one tenth of a second. But as I'm saying this, it occurs to me that once again your question may have been rhetorical. What do you want? Remember how Leonard told you we couldn't come to your performance because we were attending a symposium on molecular positronium? I remember symposium. Yes, well, 
He lied. Wait, what? He lied, and I'm feeling very uncomfortable about it. Well, imagine how I'm feeling. Hungry? <laughs> Tired? I'm sorry, this really isn't my strong suit. You told her I lied? Why would you tell her I lied? To help you. I'm sorry, I'm not seeing the help. She was going to see through your lie eventually, so I told her that you were lying to protect me. Oh, oh I'm getting a bad feeling. Hunger? Indigestion? I'm sorry, I'm really not very good at this. Anyway, Penny now believes that on Friday night, we're going to participate in my cousin Leopold's drug intervention. Your cousin Leopold? Yeah, who most people call Leo, but he also answers to Lee. Remember that, it's important. What's important? Details, Leonard. The success or failure of our deceitful enterprise turns on details. Do you have a cousin Leopold? No, I made him up. I think you'd call him Lee. I don't did, I already told her a lie. Why replace it with a different lie? Well, first of all, your lie was laughably transparent, where mine is exquisitely convoluted. While you were sleeping, I was weaving an ununravelable web. Ununravelable. Yes. If she Googles Leopold Houston, she'll find a Facebook page, an online blog depicting his descent into drug use, and a desperate yet hopeful listing on eHarmony.com. Okay, why would I go to a drug intervention for your cousin? Ah, because it's in Long Beach and I don't drive. We're going to Long Beach? No, of course not. There's no cousin Leo. There's no intervention. Focus, Leonard. Oh, come on. We just leave the house on Friday night and we return in the wee hours, emotionally wrung out from the work of convincing Leo to go back into rehab. He goes back into rehab? Yes, but he can relapse if Penny ever invites us to hear her sing again. You still told her I lied. For a noble purpose, to spare me the social embarrassment of having a drug-addled first cousin, which I'm assuming is embarrassing, yes? I don't know. How am I supposed to remember all of this? Well, that's the best part. You don't have to. See, I told Penny that you would be embarrassed if you knew that she found out that you had lied. So she's agreed to operate as if the original lie is still in force. So she's expecting me to lie about going to a symposium in Pasadena when in actuality we're pretending to go to a drug intervention in Long Beach. Ununravelable. I, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, it was quite amusing. But it does highlight quite well a number of different scenarios where, where lying begins to happen. So, Jeff, maybe you'll put the next slide up for us. This is a slide I found from the National Geographic online magazine on why scientists believe that we lie. And they, they estimate that it's really for three basic reasons that humans tend to lie. Firstly, to protect ourselves, 36% of the time is what we're trying to do when we lie. Uh, to promote ourselves, 43% of the time. And then for about 11% of the time, we lie because we want to change the effect of what we're going to say on others. I wonder, I wonder how many of those reasons you might find in the clip that we just watched. Right? I, I had to think through it. And these are some of the things that, that I thought of. The first one you can see there, I think we see avoidance, right? 
Um, they realized Penny's singing was awful. They didn't want to tell Penny that her singing was awful. And so to protect themselves from having to experience Penny's singing, they said, look, actually, we can't go there. We've got this other thing on. Of course, then that Sheldon decided that wasn't good enough, and so then they had to cover up the original lie, so they, they used the personal transgression, right, to, uh, to cover up a mistake or a misdeed to make up for the first lie. That happens quite often, actually, if you begin to get into a pattern of lying. You might know that. Hopefully not, right, because you're all very truthful young people. Right, the third thing that I, I think we see that there's the social or polite lie, right, to uphold social roles and to avoid being rude in order to spare Penny's feelings. Um, so they lie in order to make her feel better, better so that they don't have to say to a Penny, you know what you're singing sounds like three screeching cats all trying to harmonize together, right? Then, then there's a fourth, uh, a fourth thing that I think we see. Um, Sheldon then lies on top of Leonard's line. He does that partly so that Leonard would look better, right? Because Leonard's now covering up for Sheldon and trying to be a good friend to Sheldon. But he also does it to make himself look better because he's now going to a drug intervention for his cousin. So he's like a really great, generous guy. And uh, so it's a blessing for him. So, so we see those two over there. And then finally, I thought it's probably fair, and those of you who have watched a bit of the Big Bang Theory, we know that it's reasonably fair to classify Sheldon as pathological, right? And you can see how his lies begin to go towards the pathological, where they ignore or discard reality, Jeff, if you give us the last one there. All right. So, so those, are, those are just a couple. And I just thought that clip was helpful in illustrating how quickly lies can begin to accumulate and how, how many different reasons there can be for the fact that we haven't told the truth. And you know, the thing is, as much as we value honesty, and we really do value honesty as a people, right? All of us sitting here anticipate and expect honesty when we speak to one another. But as much as we do that and we value honesty, we tend to play just a little fast and loose with the truth when it suits us. I don't know if you've noticed that. I don't know if you've seen that. Right? But, but this is kind of how we operate, and Jesus was aware of this. So even 2,000 years ago, Jesus knew this was actually a part of our human nature. And so he begins to address this in the Sermon on the Mount. And in this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount, he's in this process of redefining for his disciples their understanding of the Old Testament law. Right? And so, you remember last week how it spoke around a very tricky and complicated issue of divorce and remarriage. Right? This week, the issue is actually really straightforward. It's, a, it's about what Jesus calls taking an oath. Right? And so let's read it together from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. He says, Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything else comes from evil. This is Jesus' instruction to his disciples about the practice of swearing oaths. The thing is, swearing an oath is not something that we really do every day these days. Unless you happen to be in America and you're called up onto this witness stand in order to testify, where you place your right hand on the Bible. I don't know if you still do that because America is not quite as Christian as they used to be. Right? And you say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And then you would say, I do, and then you proceed as a witness. That's, why, that's a contemporary example we have of swearing an oath, but it's not something we tend to use in everyday language these days. <clears throat> but the reason oaths existed 
was because they were a way of guaranteeing the veracity or the truthfulness of what someone was about to say, which is why when you're on trial and a witness is giving a testimony, they're asked to swear an oath to make sure that what they're now saying is going to definitely be true. All right? And so we see the practice of swearing an oath happens in many places in the Old Testament. So I want to take you to just a few of them. Deuteronomy 23, from verses 21 to 23, says this. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it before. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. By implication, if you don't fulfill it, right, you'll be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is passed from your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Right, so this is one of the instructions in the Old Testament about taking a vow, taking an oath. This is about an oath or a vow that's taken towards the Lord. In other words, God, I promise you that I will do X, Y, or Z, or, with, or not do X, Y, or Z. Right? And this vow is, is holds you to a higher standard because if you didn't make the vow to God, then there would be no sin if you did the thing that you were trying not to do or didn't do the thing that you wanted to do. But because you have made a vow to God, now it becomes a sin for you to not do it. That's what we see happening in this passage. This gets expanded a little bit in Numbers chapter 30. In the first two verses, it says as Moses spoke to the heads of the tribe of the people of Israel, and he says, this is what the Lord your God has commanded, that if a man vows a vow to the Lord, or he swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Right? And this is very much the same as what we saw in Deuteronomy 23, except what he does here is he expands the principle. And he says, it's not just when you make a vow to God, when you say, God, I promise I'm going to do this. He says, even when you make a vow to yourself, where you swear to do something for yourself. In other words, you know, for us, those New Year's resolution comes along. You're like, this year, I'm definitely going to make sure I can run 5Ks. That's my goal for this year. I'm going to get fits. I'm going to, I'm going to lose 5 kilograms. Right? When you make a commitment to yourself, Numbers 30 begins to broaden that principle to include that as well. It's also inferred in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. You see, in the third commandment, the commandment says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Right? So when you say, God, I promise that I will do X, Y, or Z, if, you are, if you're not going to fulfill that, you've used the Lord's name in vain to secure what you're going to say, and then you've kind of disregarded it. So that would fall into there. And verse 16, you see the ninth commandment is do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And again, if you remember that courtroom setting, right, where you're called to testify on the witness stand, that you're called to testify under oath that what you say is not true. So you can see it's inferred there in the Ten Commandments as well. But perhaps one of the places where it's seen most poignantly and also most tragically is the story of Jephthah. Does anyone know the story of Jephthah in Judges chapter 11? It's a really, really sad story. He was one of the leaders of the Israelite people during the time of the judges before there was a king in Israel. And he was asked by the people of Israel to defend them against an Ammonite army that was coming against them. And so he made a vow to God and he said, God, if you will help me, if you will help me to overcome and to defeat the Ammonites, then I will offer to you as a sacrifice of praise whatever comes out of my house first to greet me. I don't entirely know what he thought was going to come out of his house. I don't know if he like, had a lot of sheep that lived in his house as like house pets, and he was hoping one of the sheep would come outside. Right? But if you've read the story, that's unfortunately not what happens. 
because Jephthah goes out and he fights against the Ammonites and God gives him victory over the Ammonites and they defeat the Ammonite army and everyone's celebrating and having a great time. And then Jephthah goes back home. And it's not a sheep that walks out of his house, but it's his only child. His daughter, the one child that he has, comes out and she greets him. She's, Father, it's so wonderful that you're home and that you're alive. And he's heartbroken because he made a vow to God for some obscure reason that he would sacrifice the first thing that came out. And because of that vow, if you finish reading the story, you find that she really does get sacrificed, which is a terrible thing. And just to say that this is not the Bible endorsing human sacrifice. Right? Jephthah made a, a foolish vow. It was not well thought out. It was not really God-honoring, but once he made it, he had to fulfill it. That's how seriously vows were taken in the Old Covenant. That's what they were created for, to really guarantee the truthfulness of what you were going to say. Unfortunately, by the time it got to when Jesus was around, so Jephthah was about 4,000 years ago, plus minus Jesus 2,000 years ago, right? Things had changed a little bit in the way in which the Israelites used vows. And so we see Jesus rebuking the Pharisees or the, the pastors of his day, the religious leaders of the people. They had been teaching the people a different way of using vows in order to guarantee their speech. Right? And so Jesus rebukes them in Matthew 23. So I want to just show that to you because it paints a picture of what was happening when Jesus gives this address in Matthew 5. <clears throat> he says, Woe to you, you blind guides! You say that if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by an oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And you say if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, then he's bound by the oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift on the altar or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and everything that's on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. See, Jesus' address here shows us that what the Pharisees were doing is they were claiming that depending on the object of your vow, it created a different level of truthfulness in what you were saying. Right? In other words... Um, I could have made an agreement with Kevin. And I said, listen, Kev, I'm about to go on holiday, and um, I'd really love it if you could um, sow my fields for me while I'm on holiday. That would be really, really helpful and really appreciate. And Kevin says, you know what, Brad? By the temple of Jerusalem, I will make sure that I sow your fields while you're on holiday. And then I go on holiday for a month or two, and I come back, and I'm all relaxed and refreshed, and everything's great. And I get back to my farm, and lo and behold, there are no seedlings coming up out of the soil, because Kevin didn't sow the seedlings into the soil. Thanks, Kev. You're a great guy. <laughs> and so I take him to the Pharisees, and I say, you know, we had an agreement, and he bound it with an oath, and he said, you know, buy the temple in Jerusalem. I will sow your fields. And he hasn't sown them. The Pharisees, well, you, you know. Is that what he said? Oh, that's You know, if he had said, by him who dwells in the temple, it would have actually, it would have guaranteed it. But because he just said, I'm sorry, he actually doesn't owe you anything. Right? That, that's how, that's what was beginning to happen in Jesus' time. And he said, you've totally lost the idea. You've totally missed what these oaths are all about. And you're abusing them and confusing them. And you need to understand something. That's the backdrop that Jesus is teaching into, which is why he takes this opportunity to redefine for his disciples how oaths are supposed to work. All right. 
Here's the problem with an oath. Jeff, you put the next slide up for us. I want you, I want you to hear this. If an oath provides a means of increasing the truthfulness of what you're about to say, but then by definition, that implies that there can be different levels of truthfulness in what you're saying. Does that make sense? If I, need some, if I say something and by swearing an oath about it, it increases the truthfulness of what I'm saying, that means by default without an oath, there was less truthfulness. Right? There are two levels of truthfulness, that which is probably true and that which is definitely true. That's the problem with oaths, is it creates a distinction in what is true. And they existed in the Old Testament law precisely because of our human nature and our nature for deception. And so they were, they were brought about to regulate that problem. But what Jesus is doing in this section on the Sermon on the Mount, in case you hadn't noticed, is he's picking up all of these Old Testament um, laws and, and principles and he begins to elevate them. He says, you know what, this was the law as it was, but it was insufficient. It was insufficient to really be holy before God. And so I need you to understand that there's a different standard that I'm calling you to. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciples, if you're going to continue my work and you're going to be filled and empowered by my Spirit, then there's a new standard that you need to be a part of. It's my standard. And the standard is this, that there is zero differentiation in the truthfulness of our speech. There is no differentiation because oaths are now unnecessary for you. As Christians, you don't need to take an oath because all of your speech is true. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what this passage is all about. He's not trying to regulate the different expressions that we can use to guarantee our speech. Last week, Howard spoke on divorce and remarriage. That was, that was a complicated teaching. It was, it was difficult to get our heads around. This is not difficult to understand. It's difficult to live out, but it's not difficult to understand. Jesus' call to us is simply this. He says, one of the marks of being a Christian is that whatever we say is true. Whatever we say is true. If you're a Christian, your word is your bond. You must be a people who say what you mean and who mean what you say. That's the call. And I've said it before in the series, Jesus isn't here, he isn't trying to create a new philosophical dialogue for people to interact with at a metaphysical level and try and debate different philosophies. He's speaking because, precisely because he knows that this is an awkward thing to live out, that this doesn't flow naturally in the way in which we normally conduct our relationships. He knows this is going to make things a little bit uncomfortable. He knows it's going to make things a little bit awkward. But if you ask yourself this, if you read through the life of Jesus in the Gospels, do you ever see him doing differently? Do you ever see Jesus not living in this way? And so that, that's the heart of, of the message this morning. That's the heart of what Jesus is teaching. It's not a difficult thing to understand. Right? So what I want to do is I don't want to try and overcomplicate it because that's what it is. We need to be a people who mean what we say and say what we mean where our word is our bond. That's the heart of what Jesus is saying. The challenging part now comes is, now we need to live that out. Now we need to put that into practice. And so I want to spend just a few moments, about seven different points, just to speak about what that begins to look like as we live it out today. <clears throat> and the first one is this. If we are going to live truthfully, it means we need to live without duplicity. We need to live without duplicity. In other words, Jesus' call to live truthfully means that there should be no difference between who we really are 
and who people perceive us to be. Does that make sense? There's no difference between how people see you and who you really are. This is really the idea of integrity. Right? I, I used to have a friend, and um, we, uh, we grew up just down the road from each other. Um, his mother was the only mother besides my mother to give me a spanking. Right? So, so we were pretty close. And uh, we grew up together, we went to junior school together, we went to high school together. By the time we got to high school, we were still really good mates. And when we would hang out together, we'd have a great time. But when we'd hang out with other people, all of a sudden, he was, I was not good enough to be with him. Right? And we were of two different classes of people. Some of you might know what that's like. Some of you might have been that person to someone else. Right? This is the idea of integrity. In addition to this, I think what this also means is as Christians, we're not supposed to be a people that have skeletons in our closets, right? So there shouldn't, there shouldn't be baggage that's behind us that we're trying to cover up and that we're trying to keep closed and we don't want to let people in on because if they saw it, then they would think differently of us. This has gone really badly for some significant leaders in the States recently. Some of you might know about that. It's a really sad story where church leaders have made terrible, terrible mistakes and sinned in terrible ways and yet have not dealt with it and have covered it up and it's eventually come out into the open and it's damaged their, their integrity and their ministry and what God has done through them. But when we sin, when we sin as Christians and we do things that we regret because go, that's going to happen, the call is that we then repent of those things and we resolve the issues that need to be resolved. If we damage the relationship, we go and we make right that relationship and we work it through with someone, right? And we apologize and we ask for forgiveness. To, to make this really practical, it means as a Christian, you shouldn't need to clear your incident history. That shouldn't be something you're afraid of or ashamed of because either there's nothing in there to shame you or if there is, you need to be brave enough to go and tell someone about it and ask for their forgiveness. It's the first thing living truthfully means. It means we need to live without duplicity. Second thing is this. If we're going to, to live truthfully, that means we need to take a moment to think before we speak. Right? We need to take a moment to think before we speak. If what you say needs to be true, take a moment to make sure you know what you're about to say. Uh, and I want to tell you a story of how I learned this the hard way. Um, I've married just under 10 couples at the moment, right? It's not particularly high if you have a look at what Howard has done, right? But I've got a long way to go still. <clears throat> but there was still a first couple. And the way that happened for me was a friend of mine's mother gave me a call. And um, I was in the office and I got this call from him. And that doesn't happen really very often. Once you uh, cease being in high school, and you, especially once you move out of home, you're, you tend to lose touch with your friends' parents. You don't really expect phone calls from them all that often. And uh, so I get this phone call from her and I'm like, oh, hey, how's it going? We have a, like a small talk conversation for about a minute and a half. And then she says to me, you know, Brad, um, I just wanted to ask, what are you doing on this date? You know, the 16th of June or whenever it was. And I said, well, hang on a second, let me just have a look at my calendar. And I browsed through my calendar, and I had a look, and I said, you know what, actually, on the 16th of June, I, I've got nothing on. My calendar's empty. She said, that's so wonderful. It would be, be so fantastic for you to do my daughter's wedding. And, and I was, uh, it was a little bit awkward, because I wasn't really expecting that, and I already told her that my calendar was empty, and I really didn't feel like I had any other option except to say, you know what, sure, yeah, I'd totally love to do that. Um, now, I wasn't, my friend was a brother to um, the girl who was getting married. So I didn't know her particularly well. And unfortunately, that marriage didn't go very well. They got divorced 
within a year because of the stuff that had happened in the, in the relationship that I wasn't aware of. And now if someone says, Brad, will you marry me? I say, you know what? I'd love to meet with you, and I'd love to talk with you, and I'd, and I'd love to spend some time doing some prep with you. And if we do that together, then I'm happy to marry you. Right? Because then if something comes up, something, some red flag happens during that time we're doing prep together, and I'm like, you know what? I really think it's a bad idea for you guys to get married. Then I, can, I have the opportunity to say that. But I didn't give myself that space, and I got pressured into making a decision that I wasn't ready to make. And Look, not many of you will have it in that context, but you'll have other contexts like that where you're going to be pressured into making a decision. Another place where this is really super helpful is uh, when we're in relationships, right? If you've got a girlfriend or a boyfriend, a husband or a wife, or, or really close personal friends, right? Have you noticed how the people closest to you are the ones who really know how to push your buttons? Right? They just know those things that frustrate you and irritate you, and sometimes they take great pleasure in, uh, in just poking those buttons. I do it to Glenda quite often, sorry, love. Right? But it's one of the things that we do. It's a man's way of showing love, I'm sure. <clears throat> right? It's one of the things that we do with one another. The problem is, when we spur one another towards anger, what happens is we say something in anger that we actually don't really mean, but it can be really hurtful can be really hurtful, and, and our words can be really dangerous. I don't know how many of you were taught as you were growing up, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never harm me. That, that's really not very true. <laughs> I wish it was, but it's really not. We carry those words with us for years, and they can define how we see ourselves for a long time. James says to us in James chapter 1, verse 19, he says, Brothers and sisters, I want you to notice this, to take note of this, to write this down. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to get angry. I want you to notice that. Proverbs 29.11 says, The fool vents all of his feelings, but the wise person keeps them to himself. The fool doesn't take time to process and to understand and to listen, but just responds and pours out everything that's in him. The wise person processes and listens and thinks before speaking. It's the second thing. If we're going to live truthfully, we need to think before we speak. The third thing is this. If we're going to live truthfully, we need to be prepared for a backlash. Because unfortunately, one of the things, and we know this, right, this is why we often sugarcoat the truth or avoid the truth entirely, because we know that sometimes when we speak truthfully and honestly, it has the potential to hurt or offend someone. And because we don't really want to do that, we, we try and avoid that. And so we'll, we'll weasel our way out of speaking the truth or we'll change what we really believe to not create that conflict. It's also one of the main reasons Christians give for not sharing the gospel with people that they know well. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want them to, to think that I'm judging them. I wouldn't want them to think I'm a judgmental person. I wouldn't want to damage the relationship that we have, right? Because we're concerned that there's going to be a backlash. One of the other ways in which you can find a backlash is, um, is if, you, if you really say what you believe, you really say what you're thinking, Sometimes that can differentiate you from someone else and isolate you from a group of people and kind of ostracize you from a group, right? It can even open you up to personal attack. And we've seen some extreme examples of that where we're not, where we're very unwise people say some very unwise things on social media platforms and their lives can begin to fall apart. You know, we've seen that. I experienced that on a slightly different level. Some of you may not know this, but I used to be a river guide for a number of years. It was a lot of fun. We had a great time. It was a very relaxing time, um, a very simple time. 
It was great though. And uh, one day we were on a trip and we were guiding some clients down the Orange River and uh, we reached our camp for the night. We were beginning to set up camp and prepare food and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the conversation turned towards uh, sex and sexual activity. And um, so I was a Christian at this point, and I really believe and still believe today that God's best for us is to abstain from sex until marriage. And so that's how I'd been living. And so I began to engage in the conversation from that point of view. And, and as I began to do that, they, the, the guys just said to me, hold on, Brad, just stop for a moment. And I was like, yeah. And then, are you, are you trying to tell us that, that you're a virgin? And I said, well, Yes. And that was the last constructive moment we had in the conversation because at that point everyone fell onto the ground and rolled around and began laughing at me for about the next five minutes. And it was, that was really embarrassing. It was really awkward. My relationship with them was no longer the same afterwards because now I was marked as different and as standing out. And yet that's how God calls us to be. Sometimes there's going to be a backlash. There's going to be a response to saying that which you believe to be true and saying what you really believe. Right? We need to live in a community where there are robust relationships, where we have the courage to say what we really think and where we don't get offended the first time someone shares something with us that we don't agree with. Okay, that's the third part, being prepared for a backlash. Fourthly, living truthfully, this is halfway, means we need to be prepared to understand our own vulnerability. Right. And so I want to ask you this question. When we, when we avoid the truth for someone or we put a spin on the truth as we're speaking to someone because we're concerned about how they're going to feel about it, are you more concerned about their feelings or are you more concerned about your own feelings? And I ask that because for most of us, we, we have this unwillingness to be uncomfortable and this desire to avoid confrontation because confrontation is not great and we don't like it. And there, there are some of you out there who have strong dominating personality types, A-type personalities, and you like confrontation, right, just wait to point number seven, we'll get to you, all right? For the rest of us, if you, if you don't like conversation and you, confrontation and you try and avoid confrontation, you need to recognize that's your own insecurity. And you need to be prepared to engage that insecurity and realize as much as you don't want to hurt or offend the other person, you're actually also concerned about creating a situation in which you feel uncomfortable. And you need to begin to embrace the fact that sometimes we need to have uncomfortable situations and uncomfortable conversations. That's the only way we're going to be able to live truthfully. Fifthly, living truthfully means being prepared to receive the truth from others as well. Right? If, we, if we are going to, to embrace our own vulnerability by creating a situation that we know is going to be uncomfortable, we also need to be prepared to receive information that we don't necessarily agree with. Right? And, and that's sometimes very difficult for us because the moment someone shares something with us that we don't necessarily agree with, we get really defensive. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Ever, ever had a, a what, what did Roland call it, an um, intense fellowship session? with someone, and you discover that, you know what, actually we feel quite differently about that, and the moment they begin to speak, you're actually, you hear one thing that they're saying, and without listening to the rest of what they're saying, you're busy formulating your defense to the thing that they've already said, so as soon as they give you a gap and stop speaking, you can jump in with your thing, because it will totally swing the argument your way. Anyone else ever done that? No, just me. Yeah. We really need to, to work through our own defensiveness. Defensiveness shuts down truth like the rain in Cape Town shuts down traffic. Right? 
The moment it rains in Cape Town, everyone forgets how to drive, and it takes three times longer to get anywhere you need to go. Right? That's the same thing that happens the moment we're defensive. If someone makes himself vulnerable and steps into a space and wants to have an uncomfortable conversation with you, and the first thing you do is respond with defensiveness, it's the last time you're going to have an open and honest conversation with that person. It's going to be very difficult for them to open up again and be vulnerable again. We need to be prepared to receive the, the truth from others without responding defensively. We need to curtail that urge to defend and to respond. And we need to allow ourselves to listen and to process and to receive. Okay, penultimately, we're almost finished. Number six, living truthfully also means taking your commitments seriously. Guys, for our young generation... This, this is for you, right? This is for you guys. Sticking it out is unfortunately no longer par for the course. And, and commitment is one of those commodities that is quite easily traded from one season of life to another. Right? My dad's been a really great model for me in this. He's worked at the same company for 38 years. He's retiring this year. Right? Our, our generation doesn't really do that anymore. It hasn't always been easy. If we're going to live truthfully, we need to honor our commitments and be prepared to hold the course. Because if we're going to be Christians, our word is our bond. And if we say we're going to be there, we're going to be there. And if we volunteer to serve somewhere, we need to honor that commitment until the end. And that remains true even when it's inconvenient or uncomfortable or difficult and, and challenging for us. And I promise you guys, this, this really isn't me sharing, like airing a pastoral grievance from the pulpit. That's not what I'm trying to do here at all. Christians should be the most reliable people. Your boss should love you as a Christian because when he or she says to you, you know what, tell me, can you get this thing done by Friday? And you say, you know what, it's going to be difficult, but I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to make sure it happens. They should know that when they give you that thing to do and you say, yes, I'm going to do it, that you're going to do it and it's going to be done and it's going to be sorted because as a Christian, your word is your bond and you do what you say and you mean what you say. God honors all of his promises to us. We need to honor our promises to others. Finally, right, here's your A-type personality. This one's for you. When it comes to living truthfully, the, the way we say something matters just as much, if not more, than what we actually say. The way we say something matters just as much, if not more, than what we actually say. The Apostle John describes Jesus in this way in, in John 1 verse 17. He says, Jesus came and he was full of grace and he was full of truth. And we need to be the people that walk with the same balance. You know, walk in the same balance. Because if we're all truth and we're no grace and we stand on a pedestal and we look down at other people and we say, you're a terrible person, can't you see the truth? And, and it sounds like we're judging them. That's what it sounds like. But if we stand on the other side of the situation, we're all grace and we're no truth, then all we do is pander to people's needs and wants and coddle them and make them feel safe and warm, but never actually give them the information that'll save them. Jesus walked full of grace and truth, and we need to carry that same balance. I want to say this. The call to living truthfully is not an excuse to take emotional hand grenades, throw them into relationships, and say, you know what, they just needed to hear the truth. The rest is not up to me. It's not my problem. Right? We can't do that. You, the, the, 
The content of what you say can never be an excuse for the way in which you say it. Right? The content of what we say can never be an excuse for the way in which we say it. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4 from verses 1 to 3. He says, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love for one another. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Friends, all of our speech should be able to be described in that way. Even if you strongly disagree with someone, to the very fiber of your being, you can still disagree with them in a way that is gentle and kind and loving. The way in which we speak matters so much, just as much as what we actually say. And we should never allow what we're saying to be an excuse for the way in which we say it. Those are two different things. We need to speak truthfully, but we also need to speak gently, and those things always need to go together. Okay, that's it. I'm done. We're finished. All right. Let's, let's take a moment to pray. Let's trust that God will give us the grace to live truthfully, to honor Him, to carry His light into the world, and to develop that kind of robust community where we can have those real conversations with one another. Jesus, thank You that You came full of grace and truth. Thank you that with, with you, what we saw was always who you were. There was no shadow, there was no, no duplicity, there was no hiding. That you were straightforward and upfront. That you always engaged respectfully and truthfully. We thank you for that, God. We thank you that as your disciples, we are called to follow in your footsteps and to be like you. And to let to just say yes or no, to just mean what we say and say what we mean. Thank you, God, that, that you have enabled us and empowered us by the Spirit to live truthfully, to be a community of people who can speak the truth to one another in love, who can honor one another in the way in which we have our relationships together. And so I, we ask, God, we ask for your forgiveness where we have lied overtly, covertly, deliberately, unintentionally. God, please forgive us. Please forgive us, God. And Lord, we pray that you help us to turn away from that and to turn towards truth and to have the courage to sometimes have uncomfortable conversations with one another so that we can really say what we believe and we can be honest with one another. And we can be truthful together. Give us the courage, God, to, to hold our defensiveness back and to put it down and to learn to listen and to process and to respond. God, may we be a people who are characterized by truthfulness. May we shine as lights in our workplaces, in our schools, in our varsities, in our families, in our friendship circles, God. May people not think of us just as sycophants or yes-men or people-pleasers, but as people they can go to, to to find out what we really believe, whose opinions are valuable because we won't just say what someone wants to hear, but we will say what we really believe. May we be the people, God, that share the truth about you, the fact that you have come, that you have made a way, that you have inaugurated the kingdom, 
that you have opened a way for us to be again with you. Give us the grace, God, to be your people that speak with truth and with grace. We ask this in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Friends, our service, our formal time together here has come to an end. You're more than welcome to stay behind. If you would like to spend time with God, you'd like to pray with one another, you're more than welcome to do that. You're also welcome to join us.